Section 9 of Mystery at Geneva, An Improbable Tale of Singular Happenings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mystery at Geneva, An Improbable Tale of Singular Happenings by Dame Rose Macaulay. Chapter 37 On and on and on. It was cold down there, like death, and bitter like death, and dark. Rats scuffled and leapt. Once Henry trod on one of them. It squeaked and fled, leaving him sick and cold. His imagination was held and haunted by the small, quiet pastor. He seemed, on the whole, the worst of the four miscreants. A sinister air of deadly badness there had been about him. Lines ran in and out of Henry's memory like cold mice. Something about a grim Genevan minister walked by with anxious scowl. Horrid! It made you sweat to think of him. Then on the passage there opened another passage, running sharply into it from the right. That was odd. Which should be followed? Henry swung his flashlight up each in turn, and both seemed the same narrow blackness. He advanced a few steps, and on his left yet another turning struck out from the main tunnel. My God! Henry reflected. The place is a regular catacomb. If one should lose oneself therein, one might wander for days, as one did in catacombs. Having no tallow candle, but only an electric torch, one might eat one's boots, the very rats. Not repressing a shudder, Henry stood hesitating at the crossroads, looking this way and that, his ears strained to listen for sounds. And presently, turning a corner, he perceived that there were sounds, footsteps and low voices, advancing down the left-hand passage towards him. Quickly shutting his light, he stepped back till he came to the right-hand turning, and went a little way up it, to where it sharply bent. Just round the corner he stopped and stood hidden. He was gambling on the chance that whoever was coming would advance, back or forward, along the main tunnel when they struck into it. If, on the other hand, they crossed this and turned up his passage, he could hastily recede before them until perhaps another turning came, or possibly some exit, or until they turned on him that horrid moon of light and caught him. Well, life is a gamble at all times, and more particularly to those who play the spy. Henry listened. The steps came nearer. They had a queer, hollow sound on the earthy floor. Low voices murmured. It came to Henry suddenly that these were not the voices of Charles Wilbraham, of Sir John Levis, of Mr. Krotsky, or, presumably then, of the little pastor. These were voices more human, less deadly. The footsteps reached the main passage, and then halted. "'Here is a puzzle,' said a voice. "'Which way, then? Will we divide, or take the one road?' And then Henry, though he loved not Ulster, thanked God and came forward. At the sound of his advance a flashlight was swung upon him, and the Ulster voice said, "'Put them up!' Henry put them up. "'It's all right, man, it's only beech-tree,' said another voice, after a moment's inspection and Henry, though he loved not the morning post, blessed its correspondent. "'Good Lord, you're right! What are you doing here, Beechtree? Is your paper in this damned Republican plot, as well as Sinn Féin, Bolsheviks, Germans, and the Pope? I wouldn't put it past the British Bolshevists to have a finger in it.' "'Indeed, no,' said Henry. "'You are quite mistaken, Macdermott. This plot is being run by armament profiteers, white Russia, and Protestant ministers. They're all down here doing it now.' I am tracking them, and His Holiness, you remember, sent an encouraging message to the Assembly. That sort of flummery he would encourage. 
"'I beg your pardon, Beechtree. We will not discuss religion. Not to-night. Time is short. How did you get into this rat-trap? And whom precisely are you tracking?' "'Through a trapon in an archway off the Passage de Monetier, and I am tracking Wilbraham, Sir John Levis, Mr. Krotsky, and a Protestant clergyman, who all preceded me through it. But I don't know in the least where they have got to. There are so many ramifications in this affair.' I took it for a single tunnel, but it seems to be a regular system. It is, said Garth. It extends on the other side of the water, too. We got into it this evening through that house in the Place Cornevin, where Macdermott was built by a Sinn Feiner. We had our suspicions of that house ever since, Macdermott went on, so we went exploring this evening, and by the luck of God they'd gone out and left the door on the latch, so we slipped in and searched around, and found a trap door in a cupboard where they'd have shoved me down if they hadn't given up the idea halfway. It lets you down into a passage just like this that runs down to the water and comes out in the courtyard of one of those tumble-down old pigeon-coats by the Quai du Sujet. We came out there and then tried over this side through a trap by the Mollard jetty I'd noticed before, and it led us here. There are dozens of these trappons on both sides. Lots of them are inside houses. I always thought they led only to cellars, as to your four chaps, wherever they've got to, no doubt they're exploring, too. Wilbraham and a plot? Likely. It is, said Henry, very likely indeed. There are plenty of facts about Wilbraham you don't know. I've been finding them out for several years. I shall lay them before Committee 9 to-morrow. The other two looked at him with a good-natured pity due to the correspondent of the British Bolshevist. Your lunatic paper has turned your brain, my son, Garth said. "'Well, let's be getting on,' McDermott impatiently urged. "'Which way did your plotters take, Beechtree? "'We may as well be getting after them, anyhow.' "'I don't know. I've lost them. "'I didn't follow at once, you see. "'I waited, thinking they would come out presently. "'When they didn't, I came down, too. "'But by that time they'd got a long start, "'and as there are other exits, they may have got out anywhere. "'Well, let's come along and look. "'We'll each take a different passage. "'We'll explore every avenue, like cabinet ministers. "'I'll go straight ahead.' One of you two take that right-hand road, and the other the next turning, whenever it comes. We'll each get out where and how we can. Come on. Garth turned up to the right. Henry went on with McDermott for some way, till another turning branched off, running left. Ah, oh, there's yours, said the Ulster delegate. I shall keep straight on, whatever alluring avenues open on either side to tempt me. Tomorrow, if we get out of this, we'll bring a gang of police down and do the thing thoroughly. Good luck, Beechtree. Don't scrag honest civil servants or good clergymen on sight. And don't let old Krotsky scrag you. Politically, he's on the right side. That's why he'd want to scrag you, and quite right, too. But personally, he's what you might call a trifle unprincipled, and that's why he'd do it as soon as look at you. Chapter 38 Henry walked alone again. The passage oozed water. The silence was chilly and deep. Against it, and far above it, occasional sounds beat as the world's sounds beat downwards into graves. Geneva was amazing. How many people knew that it was underrun by this so intricate tunnel system? Did the town authorities know? Surely, yes. And knowing, had they not thought, when the recent troubles began, to explore these avenues? How that horrid phrase always stuck in one's mind. One could not get away from it, as many a statesman, many an orator daily proved. But possibly they had explored them with no result. Possibly subsection 4, Organization of Search, of Committee 9, knew all about them. What that subsection did not yet know was that Charles Wilbraham, hand in glove with autocrat Russia, armament kings, and the Calvinist Church, lurked and plotted in the avenues by night, 
like the spider in her web waiting for flies. There were turnings here and there, to one side or the other, but Henry kept a straight course. At last he was brought up sharp, nearly running his face into a rough clay wall, and above him he saw a trap-door. Here, then, was his exit. The door was only just above his head. He pushed at it with his hands. It gave not at all. After all, one would expect a trap-door to be bolted. He wondered if it would be of any use to knock. Did it give on to a street, a courtyard, or a house? He rapped on it with the end of his electric torch, softly and then loudly. He went on rapping, and knew the fear that assails the assaulter of impregnable, unyielding silence, the panic of him who calls aloud in an empty house and is answered only by the tiny sounds of creaking, scuffling, and whispering that cause the skin to creep, the blood to curdle, the marrow to freeze, the heart to stop, and the spirit to be poured out like water. Strange and horrid symptoms! Curdled blood, frozen marrow, unbeating heart! Who first discovered that this is what occurs to these organs when fear assaults the brain? Have physiologists said so, or is it a mere amateur guess at truth, another of the foolish things they say? In these speculations Henry's mind engaged while he stood in the black bowels of the earth and beat for entry at the world's closed door. At last he heard sounds as of advancing steps. Bolts were drawn heavily back, the trap-door was raised, and a face peered down, a brownish face with a small black moustache and a smooth skin stretched tightly over fat. A glimmer of light struggled with the darkness. "'Gisset!' said a harsh voice, whispering. "'Sonio!' Henry thought this the best answer. His nerves had relaxed on hearing the Italian language, a tongue not spoken habitually by Wilbraham, Mr. Krotsky, Sir John Levis, or Calvinist pastors. It is a reassuring tongue. One feels, but how erroneously, that those speaking it cannot be very far out of the path of human goodness. And to Henry it was partly native. The very sight of the plump, smooth Italian face made him feel at ease. The face peered down into the darkness, and a stump of candle burning in a saucer threw a wavering beam onto Henry's face looking up. Yeah, the voice assented to Henry's rather obvious statement. Vol sendere forse? Henry said he did, and a stool was handed down to him. In another minute he stood on the stone floor of a larger cellar, almost completely blocked with casks and wood stacks. From it steps ran up to another floor. The owner of the plump Italian face had a small plump figure clad in shirt, trousers, and slippers. His bright dark eyes stared at his visitor, heavy with sleep. He had obviously been roused from bed. Surprise, however, he did not show. Probably he was used to it. He talked to Henry in Italian. "'You roused me from sleep. You have a message, perhaps? You wish something done?' Henry, not knowing whether this Italian Swiss knew more than he ought to know, or whether he was merely assisting the police investigations, answered warily, "'No message. But I have been down there on the business, and had to return this way. I must now go as quickly as possible into the town.' He added at a venture, glancing sideways at the other, "'Signor Wilbraham was down there with his colleagues.' The man started, and the saucer wavered in his hand. Signor Wilbraham was obviously either to him a suspect name, or else his master and leader in intrigue. He was frightened of Wilbraham. "'Where is he now?' he asked. "'Will he come here?' "'I think not. Be at ease. He has disappeared in another direction. Have the kindness to show me the way out.' The man led the way to the steps and up them, into a tiny ground-floor bedroom, and through that into a passage.' 
As he unbolted a side door, Henry said to him, "'You know something about Signor Wilbraham, then?' The plump little figure shrugged. "'A good deal too much, certainly.' "'Good,' said Henry. "'Later you shall tell what you know. Don't be afraid. He can't hurt you.' As to that, the raised eyebrows showed doubt. Wilbraham, it was apparent, inspired a deep mistrust. The fat little man was shivering, either from fear or cold, or thwarted sleep, as he opened the door for Henry to pass out. "'The will of God will be done,' was what he regretfully said, unless his dear mother can by any means avert it. For me, I escape, if necessary, where they cannot find me. Good night, signor. He shut the door softly behind Henry, who found himself outside a block of old houses at the lake-end of the Rue Mutzy, under a setting moon, as the city clock struck two. The night, which had seemed to Henry already so long, was yet, as nights of action go, young. Henry, as he walked homewards by the lake's edge, wondered where and in what manner Macdermott and Garth had emerged, or would emerge, to the earth's face. The earth's face! Never on any of the lovely nights in that most lovely place had it seemed to Henry fairer than it seemed this night, as he walked along the Quai des Eaux Vives, the clean, cool air filling his lungs and gently fanning his damp forehead the dark and shining water lapping softly against its stone bounds. How far better was the earth's face than its inside! Henry, tired and chilled, had now no thought but sleep. Tomorrow early he would go to the President of Committee 9 with his report. Also he would wire the story early to his paper. As he lay in bed, too much excited after all to sleep, for Henry suffered from nervous excitement in excess, he composed his press story. Anti-disarmament, anti-peace fiends, plotting with Russian monarchists to wreck the League. All this had the British Bolshevist many a time suggested, but now it could speak with no uncertain voice. Names might even be given. Then, in the evening, when the police had explored the avenues, investigated the mystery, and proved the facts, a second telegram, more detailed, could be dispatched. What a scoop! After all, thought Henry, tossing wakeful and wide-eyed in the warm dawn, after all, he was proving himself a good journalist. No one could say after this that he was not a good journalist. Chapter 39 Mr. Fernandez Croza, delegate from Paraguay and president of the Committee on the Disappearance of Delegates, sat after breakfast with his private secretary and his stenographer in his sitting-room at the Hôtel des Bergues, dictating a speech he meant to deliver at that morning's session of the Assembly on the beauties of a world peace. It was a very creditable and noble speech, and he meant to deliver it in Spanish as a protest, though his English and French were faultless. Mr. Croza was a graceful person, young for a delegate, slightly built, aquiline, brown-skinned, black-haired, shaved clean in the English and American manner which Latins seldom use, and which he had picked up, among other things, in the course of an Oxford education. The private secretary and the stenographer were a swarthy young man and woman with full lips and small moustaches. Mr. Croza was clever, determined, and patriotic. He believed firmly in the future of the Latin American republics, and particularly in that of Paraguay, in the necessity of imbuing into the staff of the League of Nations more Latin American blood, and in the desirability of making Spanish a third official language in the Assembly. He disliked the Secretariat as at present constituted, thinking it European, narrow, and conceited, and he could, when orating on topics less noble and more imminent than a world peace, make a very relevant and acute speech. To him, already thus busy at ten o'clock in the morning, entered a hotel messenger with a card bearing the name of the correspondent of the British Bolshevist, and the words, Urgent and Private Business. 
"'I suppose he wants a statement on the Paraguay attitude towards Argentine meat,' Mr. Croza commented. "'I'd better see him.' He turned to his stenographer and said, in Spanish, in which tongue it may be observed, it sounded even better than in the English rendering, "'And so the gentle doves of peace, comma, pursued down stormy skies by the hawks of war, comma, shall find at length, shall find at length. Alvarez, please finish that sentence later on. That will do for the present, Signorita. Admit Mr. Beechtree, messenger. Mr. Beechtree was admitted. The slim, pale, shabby, and yet somehow elegant young man, with his monocle, so useless, so foppish, dangling on its black ribbon, pleased on the whole Mr. Croats's fastidious taste. After introductions, courtesies, apologies, and seatings, Mr. Beechtree got to business. "'I have,' he said, in his soft, light, tired voice, "'a curious story to tell. I am in a position, after much search, to throw a good deal of light on the recent mysterious disappearances. I have evidence of a very serious nature, indeed.' Mr. Croza, in his capacity of President of Committee 9, had become used to such evidence of late but he always welcomed it, and did so now, with an encouraging nod. Perhaps the nod, though encouraging, had an air of habit, for Mr. Beechtree added quickly, "'What I have to tell you is most unusual. It implicates persons not usually implicated, indeed never before. I am not here to hurl random accusations against persons for whom I happen to feel a distaste. I am here with solid, documentary evidence. I have it in this case.' He opened his shabby dispatch-case, and showed it full of papers. It implicates, he continued, an individual who holds a distinguished position on the staff of the Secretariat. Mr. Crozza leaned forward, interested, stimulated, not displeased. "'You amaze me,' he said. "'Take a note, Alvarez, if you please.' "'Some years ago,' said Henry, gratified by the delegate's attention and the Secretary's poised pencil, before the League of Nations, so-called. "'It is the League of Nations?' said the delegate, with a little frown. To be sure it is, Henry recollected himself. He had merely used so-called as a term indicative of contempt, like sick, forgetting that he was not addressing the readers of the British Bolshevist. Well, before the League of Nations existed, to be exact, in the year 1919, I had occasion, by chance, to discover some things about this individual. I learned that his wife was the daughter of an armaments knight, and that he himself had a great deal of money in the business. There was no great harm in this, from his point of view. He never in those days professed to be a pacifist, for though he wielded throughout the war a pen in preference to a sword, he truly believed it to be mightier. He was, in fact, in the Ministry of Information. He was not inconsistent in those days, though he was, I imagine, never easy in his mind about this money he had, and held his shares under his wife's name only. But when the League Secretariat was formed, he was one of the first to receive an appointment on it, it was not generally known where he got his income from, and he found himself in a prominent position on the staff of a league, one of whose objects, if only one among many, is to end war. So there he was, his fortune dependent on the continuation of the very thing he was officially working to suppress. It wasn't to be expected that he should be pleased at the prospect of the disarmament question coming up before the Assembly, or at the prospect of the various disputes going on now in the world being discussed in the Assembly, and referred to judicial arbitration much better for him if the rumours and threats of war should continue. Continue, stated the delegate, they always will. That, Mr. Beechtree, we may take as certain in this imperfect world. Yes, he is an Englishman, I assume, this friend of yours. An Englishman, yes, intensely an Englishman. Henry paused a moment. 
"'I'd better tell you at once. He's Charles Wilbraham.' "'Wilbraham?' Mr. Kroza was startled. He felt no love for Wilbraham, who for his part felt and showed little for the Latin American republics. Mr. Kroza bitterly remembered various sneers which had been repeated to him. Besides, it was Wilbraham who had cast suspicion on Paraguay. Further, he had been at Oxford with Wilbraham, and had disliked him there. "'Go on, sir,' he said gravely, and yet ardently. "'So,' said Henry, "'Wilbraham hatches a scheme, or possibly it is hatched by his father-in-law, Sir John Levis. He's one of the directors of Pottle and Ketts, the great armament firm. And Wilbraham is persuaded to carry it out, doesn't matter which. Levis has been in Geneva now for some days. He has lain rather low and has not been staying at Wilbraham's house, but I've evidence from his secretary that they have been constantly together. They cast around to find convenient colleagues, unscrupulous enough to do desperate things, and with their own reasons for wishing to nullify the work of the League, and to hold up discussion of international affairs while disturbances come to a head. Such colleagues, mused Mr. Kroza, would not be hard to find. Whom do they pitch on? There are a number of possibly suitable helpers, and I can't say how many of them are involved. But what I have evidence of is that they brought in the Russian delegate to their councils, Krotsky, who is a byword even among Russians for sticking at nothing. If Krotsky could stave off discussion of European politics and paralyze the assembly until Russia should be ready and able to pounce on and hold by force the new Russian republics, well, naturally, monarchist Russia would be pleased. I have evidence that Wilbraham and Levis have been continually meeting and conferring with Krotsky since the assembly began. Krotsky, that bloody butcher! Mr. Krotza, whose sympathy was all with small republics against major powers, agreed about Krotsky. "'You haven't,' he suggested, "'notes of what has actually passed between Wilbraham and Krotsky on the subject.' "'I regret that I have not. I could never get near enough.' but I have evidence of continual meetings, continual lunches and conferences. This I have obtained from Wilbraham's secretary, just to keep his engagements for him. I have obtained possession of the little pocket-book in which she notes them. I have it here. See, Saturday, lunch, Café du Nord, Krotsky and Sir John. Sunday, up Salève with Krotsky. Monday, 8 a.m., bathe. Krot... No, that can't be Krotsky. He wouldn't bathe. That must be someone else. And so on, and so on. Now I ask you, what would one talk about to Krotsky all that time except some iniquitous intrigue? It's all Krotsky knows about. So you see, when I began to suspect all this, I took to tracking Wilbraham, following him about. It's been, I can tell you, a most tiring job. Wilbraham is such a very tedious man, a most frightful bore. His very voice makes me sick. But I followed him. I tracked him. All over the shop I tracked him and last night he trapezed round the town with Levis and Krotsky and a horrid little Calvinist clergyman who must be in it too. I hate Calvinists, don't you? Intolerable persons, agreed the delegate from Paraguay. Well, at last they haired down a trap-door in an archway into the bowels of the earth. I saw them into it. After some time I went down too. I couldn't find them, but I found an extraordinary system of tunnelling, a regular catacomb. You get in and out of it all over the town, through trapons, mostly in old houses, I think. I didn't discover where half the tunnels ended, but obviously Wilbraham and his friends know all about it. And that's what they've done with the delegates, either hidden them somewhere alive down there, or killed them. When Krotsky's in an affair, the people up against him don't, as a rule, come out alive. I don't know how much the police know about this tunnel business, but they must make a complete investigation, of course. Obviously, without delay. 
A singular story, Mr. Beechtree. Very singular. Life is singular, said Henry. There you are very right. But Mr. Croza, used to the political life of South American republics, found no stories of plots and intrigues really singular. You have reason, he added, to think badly of Mr. Wilbraham, I infer. Grave reasons. I know him for a very ugly character. It is high time he was exposed. Mr. Croza thought so, too. As has been said, he did not care for Charles Wilbraham. And what a countercharge to Wilbraham's accusations against the residents at the Hôtel des Bergues! One of these Catholic converts, he reflectively commented. I do not like them. To be born a Catholic, that is one thing, and who can help it? After all, it is the true faith. To become a Catholic, that is quite another thing, and seems to us in Paraguay to denote either feebleness of intellect or dishonest mind. In a man, that is. Women, of course, are different, not having intellect, and being naturally devote. So, anyhow, we believe in Paraguay. But perhaps one is unfair. It is difficult not to be unfair to these, Henry agreed. But it is more than difficult. It is impossible to be unfair to Wilbraham. Nothing we think or say of him can be in excess of the truth. Such is Wilbraham. He always has been. Now, if you will, sir, I will show you the documents I have with me which corroborate my story. The delegate beckoned to his secretary. Go through Mr. Beechtree's papers, Alvarez. I must be getting to the assembly. It is past the hour. At this afternoon's meeting of Committee 9, Mr. Beechtree, I will lay these suggestions of yours before my colleagues, and we will consider what action shall be taken. You will be present. Meanwhile, Alvarez, have orders taken to the police to explore the subterranean passages. Mr. Beechtree, you will be able to direct them to the means of entry, will you not? I shouldn't wonder, said Henry, if they are being explored. Macdermott from Ulster and Garth of the Morning Post were down there last night. I don't know if they ever got out or not, but if they did, they'll be doing something about it this morning. They take a different view from mine, I may say. Macdermott suspects Sinn Feiners. Ulster has only one idea, you know. And Garth agrees with him, but adds Bolsheviks and Germans. Neither of them would suspect either Wilbraham or Krotsky without absolute proof. They do not like Wilbraham. No one does, but they are obsessed with their pet ideas. To every man his own scapegoat. It's the law of life. Now, Mr. Beechtree, I must leave you. We meet again at three o'clock. Here is a card of entry to the committee meeting. Till then I shall say nothing to anyone. I will lay your story before the committee for what it is worth, but I do not, you must remember, commit myself to it. It is merely a basis for inquiry, and the committee shall undoubtedly have the facts before them. But care and discretion are advisable. Your paper, I think, is not celebrated for its love either for the League of Nations and its secretariat, or of monarchist Russia, or of armament princes. We must be prepared for the imputation to you of prejudice. It would be, Henry admitted, not unjustified. My paper is prejudiced. So am I. To be prejudiced is the privilege of the thinking human being. After all, we are not animals, to judge everything by its smell and taste as it comes before us, irrespective of preconceived theories. The open mind is the empty mind. The prejudgment is often the deliberate and considered judgment, based on reason, whereas the post-judgment is a hasty makeshift affair, based on the impressions of the moment. Fortunately, however, the two are apt, in the same mind, to concur. Uh, quite so, quite so. Mr. Krotza, who was in a hurry, nodded affably but decidedly, and Henry, who was apt in the interests of discussion to forget himself, left him. End of section 9